Res kids, you guys are dismissed to go to class up on the third floor. And then as soon as they clear the uh, aisles, ushers, you guys can come forward. It's good to see you. We had an early morning yesterday. Several of us went out on the, uh, the east end and sort of downtown area as well and, and did a trash pickup. And it was really a fun way to, to meet some new people in our city and uh, serve in a glorious way. And if you ever need to find cigarette butts, they're everywhere. So uh, I picked up about 5,000 and they're still everywhere. So I kind of felt bad leaving so many cigarette butts, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, we've got a lot coming up. We've got our, our grown-up Easter egg hunt, right? An opportunity to kind of place make downtown. We're just inviting businesses to, to donate stuff for the egg hunt. What's going to happen is people are going to be shopping downtown. They're going to find eggs. There might not be anything great in it, but there might be a great prize in it, and they can come and redeem it here. So if you want to volunteer to help in any way, uh, email uh, Jordan Crago or find Jordan Crago uh, sometime after the service. So hopefully it's fun. Hopefully people participate. And uh, like I said last week, if not, we get a bunch of free stuff. So uh, it's a no-lose proposition for us. I'm excited about our missions trips in the fall uh, to our two uh, partners in Madhya Pradesh, India and Prague, Czech Republic. Uh, I'm leading the India trip, and so I really hope that a couple of you will consider going. Um, it is a, a special opportunity to be a part of God's work among the nation. So please do let us know uh, soon if you would like to be a part of that, and we will work with you uh, in preparation and all of that good stuff. This morning, I'm preaching from Exodus. I'm preaching about the Ten Commandments, as you may have uh, heard from Brittany just a moment ago. Uh, we'll be in Exodus 19 and 20. Uh, but 19 is really going to set the stage for 20, and then we're going to think about how, as Christians, we, we think about the Ten Commandments. So we're going to get there in a moment. Uh, coming up, though, uh, we're going to be having a lot of sort of services around the Easter holiday. It's an opportunity to sort of breathe out. And let me put on my church planter hat again for a moment and remind us, if you remember, we had a meeting at the beginning of the year where I talked about sort of the rhythms of the year, and I used this language of breathing in and breathing out, right? We, we breathe in when we gather for worship. We breathe in when we gather in discipleship group. We breathe in when we gather for a, a Sunday morning class. We breathe in for all these things, right? That is oxygen getting into our bodies. That is life coming into us. And then when we breathe out, that life sort of flows from us. And the Easter holiday is a great time in our culture, in our context, to breathe out. So we don't do a whole lot of outreach things while we're breathing in, right? January, February, March, our, our focus is on, on discipleship, is on making sure that we're living the way God wants us to live, that we're redeeming the everyday realities of our life with some gospel intentionality. And then now as a church, now that this Easter holiday is here and people are somewhat more receptive, more uh, anticipatory of, of the church's sort of um, presence in the community, it's an opportunity for us to breathe out. So we're going to breathe out over these next few weeks and really seek as much as we can to invite new people into our fellowship, to go and meet people through, um, through the egg hunt, through whatever that may be. And so I hope that you'll consider um, inviting friends to church or Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, both will be good opportunities, even good Friday service that we'll be having. So the next several weeks will be a break from Exodus, kind of let us all breathe, let me breathe a little bit. Uh, studying Hebrew in the Old Testament, I'm, I'm kind of ready for Easter. Um, so we're going to be doing that these next few weeks. So I hope that you will join us. The title of this morning's sermon, before we take our brief break from Exodus, is Joining God's Family 
and living God's way. Joining God's family and living God's way. You know, the Ten Commandments are... Uh, a sort of cultural icon. You know, I, on my drive when I was in high school to, to Polka, uh, where I went to high school, we went down this, you know, road called Heiser Creek, and, and there was this family who had a home kind of on the hill, and they, they built these massive Ten Commandment things, and they had, you know, the American flag and the Christian flag crossing at the top, and it was this, this big icon thing that they made, and it was, it was a sight to see. And I think of one episode of a late night show, I think it was the Colbert show, where a, a congressman has decided that he's going to, you know, take the kingdom of God on his shoulders, you know, and he's going to put the Ten Commandments in the House and Senate. And that was a bill he passed. It was some time ago he, he, he proposed. And of course, the host, I think it was Colbert, sort of turns the tables on him, and he's like, yeah, we, we're going to put the, the Ten Commandments in the House and the Senate. They need to be, you know, in a place of prominence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes, that's good, that's good, that's good. Uh, could you name them? Could you name the Ten Commandments? And the guy got kind of quiet. He was like, uh, don't kill, don't steal. Uh, and no, I can't do it. I'm not interested in the Ten Commandments this morning as someone of a cultural icon. I'm not interested this morning that you leave saying, oh, I got my, you know, flannel graph lesson. These are the Ten Commandments. Let me make sure I can cross these off. I hope that you leave, though, with a high view of the Ten Commandments, or as we might call them this morning, the Ten Words. I want to consider where the Ten Words appear in the Bible's storyline and why that matters. I think these ten words help us learn more about the character of God. They help us understand how to love God and how to love others. These ten commandments help us understand what it looks like to be part of God's family and live God's way. Though we're not the Israelites who have come out of Egypt and who stand at the base of Mount Sinai to hear these words thundering down from above. We are God's people gathered this morning together under his word. We've been adopted by God, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, his son. And now that we've been adopted into his family, we need to know how to live. We don't just believe differently. Christians are not just people who say, I have placed my faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior of my life. Now I'm going to go do whatever I want to do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then eh, sometimes on Sunday, right? Christians are people who actually live different because Christians are people who believe different. And not only are Christians people who believe different, but Christians are people who love different, Christians are people whose deepest love has been transferred from themselves to something else. In fact, to be more specific, someone else, someone greater. We are God's people. We're formed by our love of Him. Our confession of faith helps us think about how we live. And the Ten Commandments are one of many texts in the Bible, a primary text in the Bible, though, that helps us think about how we actually live. In our day, evangelicalism is sort of um, allergic to do's and do nots, but we are people who need some do's and do nots. So this morning, I pray, Lord, would you help us learn how to live as members of your family. Let's look at chapter 19 briefly. When we think about chapter 19, I'm sort of just thinking along the lines of joining God's family. I'm not going to read the entire text, but let's start in verse 1. And 
Uh, read down through verse 6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel went up. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Sorry, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. I said in the introduction that we were going to think about where the Ten Commandments appear in the biblical storyline, and understanding where things happen in the Bible can give us great context as to why they're placed where they are. So, for instance, the people of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. They have come to the base of Mount Sinai. We've detailed thus far all about all that God has done to get them to this point. So God has delivered them miraculously. And now that God has delivered them miraculously, here they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is sort of calling them to himself. So there has been deliverance, and now there's what we can call constitution, right? That the people of God are being constituted, they're being formed as God's people. And so there's a sort of covenantal invitation happening here in verses 4 through 6, right? You've seen how, what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. Now, you've seen what I've done. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my, what? Covenant. Keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Let's see what it does not say. It does not say, you shall be the people who robotically keep these laws. You shall be the people who do these things just for the sake of doing them because that's what I want you to do and don't ask why, because I said so. He said, if you do these things, you will be my treasured people among the nations. If you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What, what do you mean by that? That, that? Worship and that ministry, right? Ministering to God and ministering to others, being present in their lives, being present to God, will be for everybody. That you'll be a whole nation of priests. You'll be a whole nation of people who worship me and who love the people in their lives. You will be a set-apart people. You will be a different people. You will be a people who belong to me. These are the words that you'll tell Israel Moses. This is the essence of God's covenant with Israel, that I have brought you to myself. Notice he brings them to himself before he gives them the law. That is going to be really, really foundational when we get to the end of the sermon. God brings them to himself, and then the law will come. So he says, now you've seen how I've brought you out of Egypt, how I've borne you on eagles' wings. You've seen how I've gotten you here. Now if you will listen to my voice, if you'll keep my voice, if you'll do these things, you will be my treasured people among all the earth, and all the earth is mine. Right here is God's eternal plan for the world in its end. State. Maybe it's a toddler by now. It was an infant back in Genesis. It's growing up slowly but surely. This is sort of the, the, the early forms of God's plan for the world, that he would draw a people to himself, that these people would be set apart from the world, but that they would be set apart to be a blessing to all nations. 
Like Israel wouldn't be like a lake or a pond where like water just goes into and sits. Israel would be like a, a conduit by which the blessing of God would enter and then flow to all the nations. God's plan for Israel is quite simple, that they would be his, and that by being his and glorying in all that that means, the nations would come to the holy mountain and join themselves to God's people. And I love the clear statement of monotheism here early in the Bible, right? This clear statement that the the Lord says, the whole world is mine. Now, verses 7 and 8, the people agreed to enter the covenant. Look with me in verses 7 through 8. So Moses came, called all the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So in verses 7 and 8, the people agree to the covenant. So God sort of sets the boundaries of the covenant. Hey, if you do what I say, this is what will happen. You will be my people uh, among all the nations, and you will be a nation of priests. You'll be a holy people. Then God's people agree. So this is sort of what we're calling this morning the process of uh, joining God's family. It's almost a ceremonial moment at this mountain where God and God's people are sort of entering into a covenant relationship that will continue. It reminds us of uh, what happened to Abraham back in uh, Genesis. Now, if we look at verses 10 through 20, let's look briefly. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them to consecrate, <laughs> consecrate, and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. On the third day, the text says that the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. That his glory is going to come on the top of this mountain. And the whole nation, some two million of them, are going to see the glory of the Lord. Verse 16, let's jump ahead there. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord God came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord and to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, go down and come up bringing Aaron with you but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Uh, the portion of the text that I, I didn't read for the sake of brevity is this sort of moment where God is telling Moses to consecrate the people, to wash their garments, to make sure they're abstaining from things like sex, abstaining from uh, all of these sort of pleasures and, that are good, that God created, um, but sort of getting themselves ready for this, this big moment in their lives. 
And so the people have been set apart. They're being prepared like so. On the third day, God sort of in his glory appears on the top of the mountain, calls Moses to go up, and then he tells them to sort of be ready. And then Moses reminds God that, that you told me, like, we can't bring these people up here because your glory will strike them dead. Here in this text, we see this magnificent, marvelous, glorious, all-wonderful, all-perfect, all-powerful God and the mere sight of him we can't bear. Like if someone from Israel would have somehow stumbled up on the mountain, they would have just been struck by the sheer holiness and brilliance. It's like, think about the radiance of the sun and multiply that times infinity. I mean, just the light, the power, the glory, the grace, you would just be overwhelmed with his holiness and his goodness because you'd be instantly aware of how not good you are. Like, I don't really think I would. Have you ever talked to someone who just is morally, like, superior to you? You know, you ever talk, like you've done something wrong, and then you talk to someone else, and they're like, I would never do that. And you kind of feel like, oh, I'm not a good person, right? You kind of feel that, oh, yeah, you're a better person than me, right? That sort of slight tinge of moral superiority, like, like you feel that to the nth degree here with God, that you realize all of your weaknesses, all your frailty, and you just collapse in the sight of someone greater. You're just completely overwhelmed, so here at the end of this text, the people are set apart. God's glory is demonstrated. His holiness is profound. There's none like him in all the earth. It's impossible for sinful people like me and like you and like the Israelites a long, long time ago to approach this holy God without someone going in their place. And when I think about joining God's family, I asked the question, how do we do that today in Charleston, West Virginia in 2019? Surely we don't go to the base of a mountain and wait for God to thunder something down to us. We join God's family this morning by believing in the Son whom he has sent for us. That Jesus is like a true and better Moses who went where we could never go to earn our place there with God. That God's holiness and greatness is too much for us in our sin to handle. But just as we picture Moses as this mediator going between the people and God, Jesus is a better Moses who goes in our place where we could never go and brings us into God's family. Verse 25 ends succinctly. So Moses went down to the people and told them, the pre-law portion of Exodus, a.k.a. all the easy stuff to preach, ends with two themes. The awesomeness of God and the readiness of Moses and the people at the base of Sinai to hear God's ten words of covenant thundered from atop the mountain. So picture God's people set apart, God's glory at the top, all the people down, and they will all hear just as Moses has heard. God is speaking profoundly to all of his people. First, chapter 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then we begin the ten words. Notice I've used that word, the ten words. Uh, the text never really calls them commandments. Throughout interpretive history, they become known as the Ten Commandments. It's not wrong to call them the Ten Commandments. The original uh, context would use the term debarim, meaning the uh, plural of, of words, the Ten Words. Now, before we jump into the Ten Words, let's don't skip verses 1 and 2 that we just read. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who broke you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God has already made them his people. They were not his people because they would keep the law. They would keep the law because they are his people. That's really important, so I'm going to say it one more time. They were not his people because they would keep the law. They would keep the law because they are his people. Obedience in the Christian life is not different. We don't obey to become Christians. We obey because we are Christians. God delivers us in his grace and then by his grace also teaches us how to live as delivered people. These ten words are not necessarily called commandments or even laws, but they certainly are not suggestions. These ten words are paradigmatic. They're giving people sort of a broad understanding of how to live with God. This morning we'll divide the ten words into two parts. The first four and the final six. The first four, we could say, hang on the command to love God. The final six hang on the command to love our neighbor. So let's briefly uh, work our way through these in case we ever find ourselves on a late night comedy show. Uh, the first command is simple, this, simply this, you shall have no other gods before me. You will not worship anyone or anything else. The first command deals with our worship and the supremacy of God. It deals with where our loves and loyalties lie. You will have no other gods before me. I am the first and last, the alpha and omega in your life. I am where you begin to understand the world. I am first in your heart, in your mind, and in your actions. I am where your loves and loyalties lie the Lord may say. My question for us this morning is what or whom do we love most? To what or whom do my, do your, do our deepest loyalties lie? You shall have no other gods before me. We might think we're clear on this one because we don't have, you know, idols on the counter or, or anything like that. Yeah, idols may be on a pagan altar, but idols exist also, the scriptures are clear, in the heart of man. We must repent of our idols and turn to the living God who by his spirit crushes those idols so that we can have no other gods before him. God is teaching his people that he is who they're all about. The second commandment warns us against having the wrong objects of worship. So God is continuing to teach his people how to worship him. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the Earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. Your worship, God's saying, is not directed at creation, it's directed to the Creator. But what do we make of this language that, that makes us a little uncomfortable today? Um, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. I, the Lord God, am a jealous God. Now, to understand that, we have to remember something. Like, we have to remember that God's creatures are only functioning properly when they give God the place in their life that he deserves. Like, we are who we're supposed to be 
when we rightly recognize the rule of God in our lives. That if there is a creator, and if we are his creation, that the creation works best and most authentically and sincerely and truly when it's meshing with the designs of the creator, right? Anything that you make works best when it's functioning the way that the one who made it has made it to function. So I would translate that in our day, in our time, to that you are uh, never more you than when you're living as the person who God made you to be. God made you in his image. He made you perfect, but sin has caused a fall and a radical corruption of that good creation. And Jesus has come to reverse the effects of that sin. And so if Jesus has come to reverse the effects of that sin, if Jesus has come to return you to God's original design for your life, then you're never more you than when you're following Jesus. This is significant in a culture that teaches us to find ourselves and then figure out where God fits in. A culture that believes that, I might add, has forsaken the first commandment, and they place themselves above God. So, God's jealousy is simultaneously his zeal for our well-being. What does that mean? He understands that we are best off when we are worshiping him. We are best off when our loves that have been misdirected by sin are redirected to God. God understands this about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He loves us too much to be apathetic about our sin. Thus, his jealousy is also his passion for our well-being and our good. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. This is certainly involves not invoking God's name inappropriately, irreverently, or disrespectfully, but I think it's also more than that. Yahweh is warning Israel against using his name as if it were disconnected from his being, from himself. Right? People who declare to be themselves Christians are bearing the name of Christ. They're bearing God's name. God, at this point in history, is telling the Israelites, I'm bringing you to myself, and you're going to bear my name. You're going to be my people to the whole world. So how you live is not just representing your name. Like, it's, it's representing my name. It's like the place for the name on the front of the jersey kind of pep talk you might hear, right? That where you're going, you're taking God's name with you. We are then to exalt the name of God, exalt his reputation by the way we live our lives. So taking the Lord's name in vain is more than just saying something you should not say, though it is also that. But it's also using him to justify the life that we want to live. Not that any of us would ever do that. Not that any of us have aligned God's plan with whatever it is we just want to do and then justify the things that we want to do by throwing some Jesus-y language on top of it. I think about Paul's command to live a life worthy of the gospel. I think this is a, a similar command, a command rooted in the third commandment. Commandment four. The fourth commandment reminds us of the Sabbath, right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It reminds the Israelites that every aspect of their life has a theological reason behind it. That God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he what? He rested. So in the same way, 
there's this pattern for how you're going to live. And not only you, but all the sojourners who might just be passing through your land one day, you're going to treat them the same way, right? They'll work for six days with you, but on the seventh day, no one works and everyone rests. And when you're doing this, you're thinking about the God who created you and who created all things and who's worked these work-rest patterns in. Now, briefly, because I'm running out of time, there is uh, great disagreement about the role of the Sabbath in our lives and what we should think of that. Here's what I would, I would argue. I would argue that the principle is still grounded in creation, that the principle is true that we are working and resting beings, and that when we lack rest, it's because we often um, are, are prideful, that I can somehow get done more than God can, and that when we rest on a Sunday, if you will, or maybe a Saturday, I don't, the specifics aren't a huge deal. When you rest on Sunday, when the whole world's working to get ahead for the week, you're, that's kind of like subversive in a countercultural way, right? Like your profession is that God can do more in your rest than you can do in your work, and that it's okay to rest. In fact, you have to rest. There's a command from the very beginning of God's constitution of his people to rest. So there's a theological reason for the whole rhythm of the Israelites' week. There's a theological reason for why we meet on Sundays. You might not know what it is, but traditionally the church meets on Sunday because Jesus was resurrected on, on Sunday. And so the early church, when they began meeting in homes and in different spaces, they began to think about when are we going to meet, why are we going to meet then, what are we going to do when we meet? And they met on Sundays because that was the day that the Lord was resurrected. So every Sunday is almost like a little Easter. It's a little Resurrection Sunday where we gather on this day because this is the day that the Lord walked out of the grave. This is the day that everything changed. There's a theological reason for everything that we do. Now, the fifth commandment. Now we're dealing with sort of interpersonal relationships. Thinking about how we love God well. Now let's think about how we love people well. Honor your father and mother. Love those closest to you. Now this does not have an age limit on it, right? Those dynamics will change, authority lines and things like that will, will shift throughout your life, but you are always to honor the people God has placed in authority over you. Commandment six, you shall not murder. God alone gives life. All people are made in his image. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Commandment ten, you shall not covet. These are in some ways self-explanatory. Love your parents, honor them. And in so doing, there's a promise that your days will be well, right? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet. So my question is, and worship team, you guys can go ahead and begin to make your way up. As Christians, what do we make of these? Traditionally, it's significant to know, I think, that the church has used the ten words as part of a three-pronged discipleship process for centuries. Uh, they've used the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord's Prayer, and the Apostles' Creed. So for centuries, the church, when they have new believers who come into their lives, they will use a three-part process to disciple them. They'll teach them the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, the kingdom come, will be done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They teach them the Ten Commandments, this sort of grounding of Old Testament morality, and they'll teach them the Apostles' 
creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, meaning the whole church universal. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And they would go through the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed, and they would begin to trace out what it means to be a Christian. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said, I have not progressed beyond the instruction of children in the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. I still learn and pray these every day with my Hans and my little Lena, his daughter. The ten words have been valued by Christians for ages, and they reveal the character of our God. It's helpful wisdom. We learn more about what pleases God and how he wants us to live. We can't despise the law without despising the lawgiver. These ten words are foundational in Judeo-Christian morality and ethics, and they've been a significant part of cultures throughout the world. So the ten words are good for us to study. They're good for us to consider. Even the whole law that will follow on the pages ahead is good. But church, simply following these commands aren't enough. There's much that the law can do, but there's more that it cannot do. And Jesus articulates this so well in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds us that living God's way was never about just the lowest common denominator of obedience. It was never about just modifying our behavior. In fact, it was something more. In the middle of this incredible sermon that has split the world wide open, right? Jesus says, don't you think that I've come to abolish the law? Don't think that I've come and said, those Ten Commandments, let's throw them away. He said, I didn't come to abolish them. I came to what? fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's accomplished. If you relax any of these, basically you're in trouble. In fact, Jesus goes on to say, you have heard it said, thinking back to the ten words, you shall not murder. You've heard it said that, right? Jesus has been, I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus is saying, you've heard it say don't kill anybody, but here I'm also going to say don't hate anybody. Don't insult anybody. He'll go on to say, you've heard it was said you shall not commit adultery, right? But I say to you, everyone that looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Jesus is not correcting the intended purpose of the law, but the mistaken presumption that these laws are exhaustive. Jesus is teaching us that God's people don't just not kill. They love, right? Jesus is teaching us that God's people don't just not steal. They give. They don't just not covet. They're thankful for what they have. 
The law may restrain our sin. The law may show us how sinful we are, but we can't obey our way out of our sin. That our problem is deep and the law can't solve it. We are people who harbor bitterness. We are lustful beings. We seek our own good. And Jesus is saying, unless your righteousness exceeds even the most perfect person on the world, you will not enter into my kingdom. But Galatians 4 4 teaches us that Jesus was born under the law to redeem those under the law. He fulfilled the law in every respect, and he bore the curse of the law in our place. Through Jesus, we enter God's family, and by the power of the Spirit, we live in God's family. And in the context of the church, we figure out what this is like. The church isn't something we come to and critique and judge and post reviews about online. Right? The church is a community we belong to. The church is a people where we say, you know what, I'm bitter against that person. And I've been bitter against a bunch of people. But this is God's family. And this is where I learn how to get over that bitterness. This is where I learn how to be a reconciler. This is where I learn how to love people that I don't want to love. This is where I'll be encouraged to not, not murder, <laughs> right? This is where I'll be encouraged to not covet, not steal. This is where I'll be encouraged to become a generous person. This is where I'll be encouraged to become a, a loving person, a kind person, a gracious person. That through Jesus we enter God's family. By his spirit we live in God's family. And in the context of the congregation, in the context of the church, we commit to learning how we live as God's people. So I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know how the Ten Commandments, you know, what your first response was to hearing the do's and, and do nots, but I remind you that, that we have a God who has standards. He's holy and he's perfect, and you wouldn't love him if you weren't. His holiness and his perfection are what give us hope that everything's going to be okay in the end, despite what we may see in the world. And Jesus has made a way for us to know this holy God for us to love and be loved by this holy God and for us to be in God's family. So if you are a follower of Christ, I remind you of these truths and empower you with them. And if you're not this morning, I encourage you uh, to, um, to believe these truths this morning. I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna walk down to the table uh, and we'll have the Lord's Supper together. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, Thank you for your word. We look back at the Ten Commandments in this significant moment in uh, Israel's history where they've been delivered and, and you're now going to teach them how to live uh, your way. And Lord, we're not that different that we've been delivered from sin by Jesus. And now we're like, okay, I get that. By grace through faith, I've entered into your family. But how do I live? And these Ten Commandments help us see that we're to be a people who are loving and kind and generous, a people whose hearts are fixed on you, a people whose obedience to the law is not just rote and legalistic and simple, but we jump into the fullness of who you are. Lord, empower us to live in a way that pleases you. Empower us to live as your people in the everyday stuff of life. Empower us, God, by the spirit that you sent to dwell in us, to be a good news people, 
who go to the nations with the good news of Jesus, the risen Lord. Amen. If I could have Trey come join me at the Lord's table. I will read our first portion. Hallelujah, Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. You know, that was not really, that's not going to work. You know, sacred moments and holy moments are not opposed to joy. Hallelujah. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Amen. The body of Christ, the bread of heaven. The blood of Christ, the cup of salvation. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come and partake of the Lord's Supper. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come. And when you come, just kind of put your hands up like, no thanks. And I'll just pray a blessing over you. If that makes you uncomfortable, I understand. You can stay seated, and we're really glad that you're here. So come, join us at the Lord's table.